Well, <clears throat> this past week I was in conversation with someone who was asking me uh, uh, about Clarity Church. It's someone I had just met. And obviously, you know, when you meet people, you have the, the typical conversations like, oh, where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. And then, oh, your pastor. Oh, okay, well, tell me a little bit about your church. Tell me a little bit about your church. And, uh, you know, I was like, of course, I'll tell you about my church. But I guess uh, if you want to know what Clarity Church is all about, then I have to start from the beginning. And maybe this is just me, but starting at the beginning makes sense when you're talking about something that is really meaningful to you because, at least for me, when I want to explain something of great significance to me, there is often a felt need to start at the beginning. Ask me, hey, Phil, why did you marry Leona? And I'll I'll start by telling you how we first met, right? Ask me, hey, Phil, why were you a music major in college? And I'll start by telling you the earliest memories of me plucking out melodies on ear on my godparents' piano 35 years ago. Ask me, hey, Phil, why do you wear plaid all the time? I'll start telling you about the first time I met a guy named Jeff Varghese, right? (laughs) Uh, Over 1,900 years ago, one of the first disciples of Jesus felt the need to record an account of the life and teachings of Jesus And to do that, he started with what he felt was the most important thing. He started by saying, in the beginning. Before we get to that, I think it's important to acknowledge that at the end of this historical document that we now refer to as the Gospel of John, John gives us the reason for why he wrote what he wrote. And I think that's just really important to recognize when we read anything that comes from the Gospel of John. In his last words in this Gospel, he says this in John 20, 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now that sounds like good news, doesn't it? And that's what Christmas, Charlie Brown, is all about. (laughs) So, if Jesus really is the reason for the season, then setting our hearts and minds on the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, we sang about that this morning, that he is the Son of God, sent out of love for the whole world to die and be raised from the dead so that through belief in him we would not perish but have everlasting life. If this is true, then setting our hearts and minds on the gospel is not only just a good thing, but I would go as far as saying, especially during this season of Advent, it's the main thing. Last week we looked at how the gospel demands of everyone who believes in it and receives it to embrace a life of repentance and humility. Okay, we talked about that. And then two weeks ago we looked at how the gospel invites us to place our hope in the fact that Jesus is returning, that he's coming back, that, and, and really to allow his return and the realities of who Jesus is returning for to influence how we reorient our rhythms of our lives so that we live for God and for his mission. 
And I, and I put in front of us, and it's just a good question for you to ask yourself. Like, when was the last time when I thought about the decisions of my life, when I thought about how I make the decisions of my life, the metrics from which I value things, the metrics from which I consider certain things priorities and which things are not priorities? When was the last time I viewed it through the lens that Jesus is coming back for his church and he's coming back for a people who have embraced righteousness and humility. And so, today I want us to look at how John starts his record of the gospel of Jesus and his argument for how we can believe the good news that Jesus, and mostly important, uh, how we can believe in the good news that is Jesus and most importantly, how we can have life. Now, I will, I will say this real quick, just a couple seconds. Uh, every week, I usually have my wife read my message. And she usually helps me, you know, make it a little better. And I will warn you, I don't know if you're not supposed to say this as a public speaker. But this is just so you can give me some grace. She, she said, looks pretty good. I just don't know what I'm going to do about the middle part. So good luck. Um, so we're going to start the middle part right now. And what I want to ask you, and the reason why I say that is this. Um, sometimes... I'm really, really practical, like in how we look at the scripture. Like it gets right to the nitty gritty. Sometimes you just have to look at the text, okay? And what it says, right? And that's what we're going to try to do. But I'm going to do it terribly because for some of you who want to go deeper, it's like, oh, you totally missed that one part about, and then for some of you who are like, don't like that stuff, like just tell me what to do. So I'm just going to equally offend everybody today. But hopefully when we get to the end part, we'll all walk away my hope is that the Holy Spirit through his word will have spoken to you in some type of way and what does it mean to be about Jesus, okay? So, with that said, let's just get that out of the way. Uh, John 1 starts like this. Uh, oh, goodness gracious. I uh, accidentally deleted that part from my my message. It just, I'm going to have to open up. And it's the one week I forget my paper Bible at home. So let's just look at this together. Are you ready, ready? Here we go. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. Love that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness. And yet, the darkness did not overcome it. Let's just stop there for a second. I think it's something that needs to be said in light of how many people view Jesus nowadays. And, and I'm not upset. Uh, but I just think it needs to be said because I think it's really popular to view. And it's not like it's anything new. But it's to view Jesus as like, just you know, he's like a really good teacher. I mean, we don't really know if he was God, but 
you know, what he has to say is really good. And he's a good teacher. But it seems to me that John, when he wrote his gospel, believed that Jesus was more than just a good teacher. Later in John's gospel, it records Jesus referring to himself as the light of the world, John 9, 5. But what John is establishing is that Jesus is more than a good teacher. Being the light of the world was an allusion not to the fact that he kind of made things brighter when he walked into the room. (laughs) That's not what John was referring to. He wasn't telling us that Jesus was a really wise rabbi or, or maybe at best the founder of some new kind of more altruistic, more loving religion. And to be honest, we don't have a lot of time to break down the very interesting nuances of John's choices of using the Greek word logos to describe Jesus, which by the way, um, we live in the post-information age. Google is absolutely amazing. And all the books I bought in Bible school that you had to pay hundreds of dollars for, they're online now. So go ahead and Google Logos Bible and you'll figure that out. But here's what needs to be said. John wants us to know that Jesus, it's just a few things, that he was in the beginning with God. Okay? So a a a human being that was just a good teacher existed with God. Okay, okay. Okay, that You're starting to paint a picture for me. And in just in case we misunderstood him for supporting some heresy that was going around that time, that Jesus was a created deity. Some people are going, okay, I I get it. Yeah, Jesus was with God at the time, but you know, God made the heavens, he made the earth. And a little bit before that, he had made Jesus. Okay, there was this teaching, even in the early church. John doubled down and he said, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. For reason only he knows, and in ways that many people speculate through the years, John was compelled to bring up the situation next here about John the Baptist that we talked about last week, and says this in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. (laughs) If you're not a really, uh, I don't know why this, I'm not even going to say it. Sometimes things pop in my mind, I'm like, "Mm, you probably shouldn't say that. Anyways, verse 10, he was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. He came into his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not out of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. So, in Jesus' time, those who claimed in a belief of a God, or God's primarily, saw uh, little g, when I say God, God as an impersonal God. One who expresses himself in divine ways and demands things of mere mortals, but rarely interacts with them in ways that are either not self-serving or, you know, for, for their own purposes. 
Uh, they, you know, or, or, or sometimes people view deities as distinct beings with powers that interacted with human in maybe only specific ways, right? Like the god of love, or the god of war, or the god of the seas. And at best, these gods, though divine in nature as divine could be defined by pagans, they demonstrated, here's the funny thing, they all demonstrated fatal flaws and weaknesses that proved that at the end of the day, while these deities were more powerful and sometimes could see things past what the humans could see, at the end of the day, they were no different than the regular human beings that we are who basically lived our lives pursuing selfish ambitions. These were what was thought of most of the deities. Now, if you happen to be a Jew at that time, well, then you were part of a religious movement that did believe in the one God. But you had a problem too. Because you had not had heard from Yahweh from over 400 years. Like you had no communication. No one had heard from the one who is slow to anger, abounding in mercy and everlasting faithfulness. And so without some kind of divine directive guiding the everyday rhythms of their life, most Jews leaned into what was natural to them, which would probably be natural to us before we get too judgmental. Which was what? What did we have? Well, we had some rules. And so let's lean into those. And what they began practicing was a very legalistic religion. Of course, there were many other expressions of religion throughout the world, but what is clear was that Jesus made his entrance as God in flesh into a world of disoriented God-seekers, if I could kind of use that phraseology. It's not new to me, but it's it's a good one. He entered into a world of disoriented God-seekers, and whether you were religious or not, most everyone was in some way trying to define who God is, or (laughs) on the Total other side, the agnostics and atheists were even trying to define who God wasn't. It was into this environment, an environment that John described as darkness, as we saw here in John 1. God decided that it wasn't enough just to tell us about himself. In order to help the world know who he was, he needed to be more than God described to us. He needed to be God with us. And this is what theologians call the incarnation of Jesus. That God was made incarnate, God with us. Uh, One pastor says this, God in a bod. (laughs) But that is the idea, God with us. And in John's gospel, his account of the life and teaching of Jesus, he gives us the clearest picture of this concept of incarnation by starting with describing Jesus as the word. And this is the verse I kind of want to camp on today, which is this. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. 
Among theologians, there is a term that they use to describe both the God of the universe, how he became flesh, to take on flesh, to come into the world through childbirth in the same way that all of us did, so that through his life we could know God, be reconciled to God, be transformed by God, and be empowered to live for God. And that word is incarnation. Okay? Incarnation. Incarnation was Jesus' mission, by the way. He was sent by God so that we could know what God was like. So that we could be reconciled to God and live transformed lives through the power of God. Of all the things that the season of Advent powerfully communicates regarding the good news of Jesus, it's this one thing. This is the one thing. Before Jesus was the good teacher preaching the Sermon on the Mount, or the suffering servant dying on the cross who rose from the dead. Jesus was a baby born into the world who found his first crib inside of a feeding trough for animals. Jesus was a toddler who learned to walk and talk, eventually feed himself and clean himself. Before Jesus became the man who turned water into wine or walked on water, he was a child who grew up into a man that lived the kind of life of consistent character that was best described by Luke in his gospel when he wrote this in Luke 2.52. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. So before Jesus bled and died to become the savior of sinners, Jesus broke bread and he dined with them, even being labeled as friend of sinners. So here's a question I think is just healthy to ask. How how does anyone gain influence and access into the lives of someone that they have nothing in common with? Like, have you ever met someone? Maybe your mom, when you were a kid, set you up on a play date. And when you got done, mom's like, how'd it go? And you're like, mom. Tommy's weird. <laughs> you ever been at a company outing and you come back and your wife said, well, how did we go, honey? Not that your wife sounds like that or mine. I'm just saying that there's maybe one out there. Oh, man. I didn't know how weird my coworkers were. You moved into your dorm. And you met some of the people that lived in your floor and you're like, oh my goodness, this next semester. <laughs> How does anybody gain influence, access into the lives of those they have nothing in common with? I'll tell you one thing. It probably doesn't help if you say hi, your name, and you lead with, hi, <laughs> I'm the son of God. 
I'm the Messiah. <laughs> Follow me. Follow me. Yet, we see Jesus doing this in the New Testament. And again, I'm taking some liberties here because it doesn't really talk about it. But all over the New Testament, you see Jesus doing this thing. I, I'm preaching. You, come follow me. Yes, I will follow you. And not that there isn't anything to go to. I mean, Luke tells us, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and all the people. But I think there was something that Jesus knew that we could learn from about what it means to grow an influence and access in the lives of someone you have nothing in common with. Because truth be told, Jesus was loved by people. He was no one like. Nobody was like him. But people loved him. In his book, Flesh, Learning to Be Human Like Jesus, by the way, if you're looking for Christmas gifts to get someone or yourself, I actually do. This is a book I I highly recommend. This is on my I Read It Every Year book list. In his book, Flesh, Learning to Be Human Like Jesus, pastor, author, Hugh Halter writes this. I'm just going to read it. It's a little bit long, but it's really good. Okay. Can you picture Jesus smashing his finger, then biting his lip, dropping to one knee, and wincing in painful laughter? Can you see him waking up in the morning, headed to the facilities, likely an olive tree, And looking around to make sure no one was watching. (laughs) Can you imagine Jesus with gas after a bad meal of hummus and sardines? Reflect on him freezing cold, huddling next to his brothers or mothers. Uh, Mother, not mothers, mother. I can't read. To try to stay warm. Don't quote me on that. That'll be on the headlines. Pastor from Clarity says Jesus had mothers. Okay. It's easy to picture him as a baby. But what about as an awkward teenager with raging hormones? What about a 28-year-old virgin who was maybe one of the last single men in his village? Can you see him working long days with his father, going home exhausted, falling asleep, and then waking with a sore neck and maybe swollen fingers? If not, it will be hard to relate to him and even harder to live like him. If you see him only as God, you may worship him or study him, but you will miss the joy of emulating him. Jesus was born. He messed his pants. He grew up, hit puberty, got sick, puked, got tired, woke up disoriented, sneezed, Scratches armpits, and yes, Jesus pooped. He got hungry and thirsty and hurt himself while playing and working. As he grew, he was curious about life and spiritual matters and was always asking questions. His voice, body, and personality went through changes. We know that during his ministry, he got sad, angry, frustrated, and fearful. He laughed and he cried. He fought temptation. Of every kind. And he experienced physical death. In his birth, he was vulnerable. In his boyhood, he was playful and inquisitive. 
And as a grown, manly man, he was the guy next door, a real rustic hombre. He gets the awkward of not living like God. So we can relax, put away our goofy attempts to be more godly, and reconsider being truly human. Now, you may not agree with the way Hugh took the liberty to fill in the blanks. <laughs> I get it. Between Jesus' birth and the beginning of his teaching ministry, but what is undeniable is that Jesus lived a kind of life where he grew in reputation with those around him, which opened up opportunities to have eye-opening and life-changing conversations about who God the Father is and what his kingdom and his righteousness is all about and how people can be saved. Over the Christmas season, Jesus will often be referred to as Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? This is because the incarnation of Jesus is about a commitment to deeply dive into the world. When Jesus incarnated, he said, I'm not going halfway. I'm going to go all the way. I'm going to do this. He could have came back as a chiseled 28-year-old specimen of a man. But he came as a baby to live this life, to understand it, and to be perfect in an imperfect body. Though he was like us, he did not sin. Think about that. Incarnation is Jesus in the world, not against people, but in the world with people. And herein is the encouragement for every one of us. As Jesus was about his father's business in the world, some of you remember that story where Jesus kind of gets separated from his family and uh, his family actually leaves Jerusalem <laughs> and they don't realize it until hours, hours later and they're like, where's Jesus? Ah! We've lost Jesus. And then they go back and where do they find him? They find him in the temple and he gives them this line and it could be, it could go either way when Jesus says, you know, don't you know that I'm, I, I'm, I'm supposed to be in my father's house the word there is actually ambiguous. It could be house or business. And so you've seen it both. But the idea is this, that Jesus made it clear to his parents that, yeah, uh, there's an understanding you have. I am your son. But don't forget, I am here for the purposes of God, my heavenly father. And so Jesus was about his father's business. And we want to be about Jesus. And as Jesus was about his father's business in the world, we who place our hope in this God with us have to remember that good news living, gospel-centered living, is a call to be about Jesus. And I get it. COVID realities make it really hard to connect personally with others, right? It's, it's, it's hard. It is what it is. But... It was also really hard for people to be about Jesus when the Emperor Nero, just 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead, decided to begin rounding up 
and killing the people who were thought to be the followers of Jesus. Some being torn apart by dogs, others being burnt alive as human torches. Yet, somehow, they figured out how to be about Jesus. Even today, in many parts of the world, COVID isn't the only thing threatening the call to be about Jesus. In a BBS article, a BBC article last year entitled Christian Persecution a near, at Near Genocide Levels, it reported that Christians were the most, and, and by the way, this is a news organization that historically doesn't show itself favorably to like Christian news, okay? So it's going to report on something Christian, so take a listen to this. Here's what it says. Christians were the most persecuted religious group. Evidence shows not only the geographic spread of anti-Christian persecution, but also its increasing severity. In some regions, the level and nature of persecution is arguably coming close to meeting the international definition of genocide, according to that adopted by the UN. If you want to find that article, when I make my notes available to those in our community groups, you'll find a link there. You can read the article for yourself. It's disheartening. Now, you would think that this would be the kind of news that would keep people from being about Jesus. But listen, the numbers don't lie. An article released in recent years by the Washington Post, another classically not known news organization to be about Christianity, but that's neither here or there. But here's what it reports. While Christianity may be on the decline in the United States, the world is becoming more religious, not less. While rising numbers of nuns, it's a category they talk about of people who don't believe in anything, those who claim no religious affiliation when asked, claim the attention of religious pundits, the world tells a different story. Religious convictions are growing and shifting geographically in dramatic ways. I get it. It's easy for me, the pastor, to say to his people, let's be about Jesus! And it's easy for you to go, yeah! But it's harder when we go outside and we're disenfranchised and disheartened by the realities that we're living in. And I'm not here to argue about whether it's constitutional, unconstitutional, freedom right or right. I hear, here's all, I'm, all I want to say is this. Have you forgotten about being about Jesus? Because the world is going through all the same COVID stuff we are too, and more. And I'm telling you this. God is building his church. And his church is figuring out how to be about Jesus. And listen, we might have had a bump in the road, but I believe that this is the time that the church can go, you know what? We had our moment where we could kind of sulk. And we can kind of be like, oh, woe is us. And blah, blah, blah. Because the church in America sometimes is American first before they recognize that their citizenship is in heaven. But once we've recognized that our citizenship is in heaven, I think this is the time. 
And I'm excited for what God can do through a church that is about Jesus in the midst of everything.